Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Uh, right now, we've got uh, Justin Sink also uh, out of our uh, D.C. Bureau. And uh, Justin, uh, you're covering the president. Uh, and, you know, we talked just briefly about his planned trip to Puerto Rico. When he gets there, uh, he's not go- is he going to find any love? Well, I think that's a, a big question. I, obviously, the White House has depicted um, the response to the storm as more than adequate. They've said, you know, they, they think that... Uh, it's been a kind of unprecedented response in terms of military personnel and uh, getting supplies down there. Uh, we've seen a lot of stories from the ground that suggests that, and heard from the mayor of San Juan to, to suggest that there is a lot of frustration that things still aren't great there, that food and water aren't getting to people that need it, that uh, power is still not on. And so uh, we are, I think that's going to be the big question coming out, out of tomorrow is what kind of reception he receives um, and how far he goes. It's possible that the president's schedule just leaves him kind of on a military base where he's unlikely to face some of the criticism. But if he does decide to go out to some of the more storm-ravaged uh, areas, it's a real question of, of how people are going to respond. You know, Justin, I'm, I'm really struck by the normal playbook that we normally have when there are tragedies. And this, of course, is relevant to the comments that we are awaiting from President Trump imminently about the Las Vegas shooting. Normally, presidents come out and they say, oh, what a horrible catastrophe. We will do everything in our power to make things as better as we can for the surviving victims, whether it's in Puerto Rico, we are, you know, doubling down all of our efforts. Our line is open. Call us. We want to hear from you. We want to figure out how to go uh, go forward in a better and bigger way, Go, you know, in the future. Uh, this is this is so out of the norm to basically uh, try to attack people and spin the picture in the process. Am I wrong? No, I think I think you're right that presidents of both parties have really uh, tried to play that consoler in chief role, you know, um, in the light of tragedy, whether it's President Bush going down to Katrina after or going down to New Orleans after Katrina and Jackson Park and, and trying to harness that moment, even though uh, obviously I think um, it ended up being a, a situation that damaged his presidency. Uh, you mentioned Las Vegas, and I think some of the most memorable moments of President Obama's term were his response to mass shooting events, the church in Charleston uh, being maybe the top of that list. And uh, it's not a role that, that President Trump has really had to confront until the last couple of weeks, and it's one where he seems a little uncomfortable. I, I think that this is um, somebody who has, throughout his political career, found um, some of the most success in in rallying his core supporters and outraging um, some of his critics. And, and that's an approach that uh, is different from what many presidents have taken at times where you might see them try to, I think, bring together a national unity. And so uh, it might be a reflection of Donald Trump, uh, of a changing political climate, of 
different expectations among Americans, but it's going to be very interesting to see how he tries to navigate uh, the speech coming up in a couple minutes, but also uh, his visit to Puerto Rico tomorrow. So, Justin, just uh, sticking with Puerto Rico, I'm trying to get a sense of just how much of a humanitarian disaster it is and where the U.S. troops and other uh, first responders are in in uh, in dealing with what's going on. I mean, power has been resp- restored to a lot of people, right? I mean, are we out of the danger zone? I don't think we're quite out of the danger zone yet. And the reason that I say that is that while, you know, there has been measurable progress throughout much of the island, there are still hospitals that aren't fully online. Um, There are still remote areas of Puerto Rico where uh, we don't have great visibility into both what has already happened and and the current status. but things are getting better day to day. And so uh, I think one of the big kind of outstanding questions is what is the extent of the damage since we don't have full communications, since we haven't been able to clear all the roads and get to everywhere? Um, you know, we have a sense of the major population centers starting to to get into recovery mode. But I think especially in remote and rural areas and areas where communications continue to be a, a real issue. Um, we just don't have a, a size or, or scope of, of what the sort of damage is yet. You know, Justin, I'm struck by the notion that there may be a connection between the damage that the Commonwealth faces and economic decisions that were made years hence, in the sense that, you know, if you're not able to continually upgrade and strengthen and uh, bolster your infrastructure and to take account of new information such as weather patterns and so on, uh, then you're faced with what the, what has happened in Puerto Rico. Is there any way that uh, in the rebuilding that takes place, it can be uh, framed in such a way that it would actually lead to something positive for uh, the, the future, not only of the island itself, but of the way the economy works? Yeah, so I think there's two elements to this. One is the sort of rebuilding of the infrastructure on the island and something that Trump administration officials have really emphasized is as they are sort of rebuilding the power grid, which is going to be a huge undertaking, um, as they're rebuilding utility services like the the sort of uh, water and sewage systems, they're going to try to future-proof those in a way that um, makes them less susceptible to the type of damage that we saw in the aftermath of this hurricane. So that's going to be hopefully a positive for uh, the people of Puerto Rico as they confront future tropical storms. the second part of this is, is the trickier part, which is that there's still tens of billions of dollars of debt that hangs over the, the island's government, and that's a problem that's only going to get worse as they try to grapple with um, an economy that's going to be as devastated as everything else on the island. Um, so a big outstanding question is whether Congress uh, steps in and provides any sort of bailout to help the island um, get from under that you know, economic news that has really prevented them from doing the sort of maintenance and upgrades that uh, that we've seen in other states. So far, we haven't seen a, a big movement for that on Capitol Hill, but it's... Justin, you know, I, let, let me just break in because it makes me think, is there a possibility that the Republicans would take this as an opportunity? And therefore, because, you know, one of the issues has always been if you were to, in some way, smooth the path for Puerto Rico to become part of, uh, to become a state... Uh, that would tilt the balance in the Senate. And uh, is this an opportunity for the Republicans to maybe gain uh, if they seize the moment? 
Well, it's it's tricky politics for sure. I, the statehood um, issue is not something that we've seen a lot of traction on uh, here in Washington, and I would be very surprised if that was an outcome. But it it is going to be tricky uh, to navigate, I think, for politicians on both sides of this, because a lot of Puerto Ricans who are displaced by the storm are going to end up moving to the continental U.S. where they can vote just like any other American citizen and, and make their voices heard. But a lot of that's likely to happen in Florida, uh, where a, a big influx into a state that has historically been uh, a swing state, kind of 50-50 Republican-Democrat, uh, could really be impacted by tens or hundreds of thousands of people moving there. And exactly. if, they, if they are upset by the government's handling of, of the storm, that could really create um, some political trouble for Republicans. Similarly, if Democrats aren't seen as responsive enough here or in some way holding up the relief effort, then you know, it could swing back the other way. But I think a lot of politicians are, are sort of attuned to the, the political consequences of what's happened. Justin, do you have a sense of the response overwhelmingly in Puerto Rico? Because we've seen some conflicting reports out, the governor trying to make peace uh, between the mayor of San Juan and uh, President Trump, others saying, look, we have a ways to go, trying to sing Kumbaya. Is that the mood among the residents or are they even following this? Because I know Internet's been down. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's hard to get a real sense um, of what sentiment on the island is, both because uh, communications have been difficult, but also I think the primary concern for most of the people in Puerto Rico is, can I get somewhere that's air-conditioned? Can I get food and clean water and sort of the basic uh, services that people need to, to stay alive and live their lives? Can I start rebuilding my business? So uh, it's not clear how engaged... Um, the sort of everyday people of Puerto Rico are in this sort of back and forth spat that we saw over the weekend. Uh, But, you know, the governor's comments are indicative of, I think, a a politician who knows the massive federal aid is going to be needed and that is going to be distributed through the White House in some way. And so even if I think the governor might be sensing frustration among the constituents in in Puerto Rico or be a little uh, starting to get agitated with the federal response, there is sort of a strategic advantage in in keeping uh, that sort of kumbaya uh, spirit together because it's going to be a long rebuilding process. Justin, is that uh, that a contrast to what would happen uh, to a state versus being a commonwealth that you would go directly to the president rather than if you were a state and you had a coalition or a group of colleagues in the Senate, in the House? Well, I mean, I think you bring up an important point, which is that, um, you know, when Florida or Texas were were hit by these massive hurricanes, they do have to sort of rely on the federal government for aid, but that they have both a uh, state government that is more equipped to uh, borrow money to help with recovery efforts, that sort of thing, and they have a congressional delegation of at least, you know, well, two senators and at least one member of the the House of Representatives that can be sort of forceful advocates for them in Washington and whose colleagues have to interact with them and count on them and, and need their votes for a whole range of things. Well, when we call upon Mark Gilbert, our Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, we want to know one thing. What is the aftermath of the vote in Catalonia, the northeastern region of Spain, 
where the Spanish government from Madrid did just about everything they could think of in order to prevent the vote from taking place. What went on and what should we take away? Everything went wrong. I mean, they've had three years of notice that that Catalonia was, was, was heading for an independence vote. They could have defused it. They could have granted more independence economically to Catalonia. It's, it's the country's richest region. It contributes about a fifth of the economic output. And yet Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy... He's he's done just about everything wrong. And those those YouTube videos that we're seeing today of, of police using rubber bullets and batons against ordinary people who are voting, it's just terrible for, for the country. You know, I, I just there was one image that really stuck out to me when I was looking at the videos and pictures of a woman, an elderly woman with gray hair, with blood coming down her face after getting into an altercation with the police for voting uh, allegedly illegally because the Spanish government said uh, that this was a not illegal vote. I'm just wondering, what's the path ahead? And markets seem incredibly sanguine given the amount of turmoil. No. Well, even last week, the bookmakers' odds were putting the chances of a vote in favour of independence at between 80 and 90%, but that's largely because of turnout. So there are about 5 million eligible voters in Catalonia, of whom 2.3 million actually turned out, and of whom 2 million backed independence. So you've got about 85% voting in favour of independence, but only on a turnout of a bit more than 40%. So... The vote, in terms of claiming to be the will of the people, that's tricky because a lot of those who oppose independence didn't turn out. They take the government's view that this is an illegitimate vote under Spanish constitution. Um, and surely didn't turn out there. But, you know, it's never a good look when you well, yeah, honestly, batons. Mark, I mean, in the U.S., uh, Honestly, turnout isn't usually all that much more than that, frankly, for elections, which shouldn't be necessarily a model. But it's pretty amazing that nearly half of the population voted in this illegal referendum, according to the Spanish government. And then the violence sort of sets up ongoing and escalating tension going forward, no? It does. But the turnout matters for something as momentous as seceding. And let's bear in mind, Catalonia has debts of about 6 billion euros. The Spanish country as a whole has debts of about 1.2 trillion euros. So not only will Catalonia have to take on a chunk of that debt, as I said, it accounts for about a fifth of economic output. So on a, on a on competitive basis, it would end up with about a fifth of those debts. The European Union says it won't be part of the EU, even if it manages to secede. So it will be out there on a limb. It would make Brexit look like a walk in the park. And so the turnout really does matter for something as momentous as a region of Spain seceding from the country as a whole. And the, the problem is that the government has wanted the problem to go away. It's kind of wished it would go away. Now it's on its doorstep. It's not really clear where Rajoy can turn next. Are investors expressing their doubts by pulling money from the stock market? I'm just looking at a chart of the IBEX uh, 35. And if you go back to the beginning of May of, uh, of the year, you were looking at, uh, well, you know, a peak, right? So we're over 11,000. But now we're down almost 8%, and it has been a steady decline. Is that an expression that investors are saying, look, I'm really not interested in adding more capital, so the prices are getting cheaper? The, the, the benchmark stock index is down about 2% today, whereas the rest of Europe's benchmark indexes are up. In the past month, the IBEX index has underperformed the stock 600, the, the benchmark for the Eurozone, 
by about 4%. So clearly it's having an effect. A couple of the Barcelona-based banks are down about 5% or so today. Kaiser Bank, Banco Sabadell, they're being hit. The worry is that you end up with a general strike in Catalonia. Um, and I think that some of the secessionists are, are threatening to call a general strike. And the idea is if if if, if 40% were in favour of independence, then 40% might not turn up for work. And again... With the region contributing a fifth of Spanish economic output, you know, there's a nascent economic recovery in Spain, unemployment's down, but the last thing it needs is a general strike and this kind of this kind of strife going on. Investors have, have, have punished the bonds as well. The 10-year yield's up about 10 basis points, um, but it's down from where it was earlier this year. So there's not a sense of panic. There's not really a sense of crisis. And investors have known this was coming for, for, for a couple of weeks now. Um, But there's definitely a feeling that this could turn nasty um, and that Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy has got to do something. He's going to have to offer some kind of olive branch. um, Otherwise, you could end up with this general strike and that would be economically very damaging to the region and to the country. Hey, Mark, when uh, when do you think you're going to start to get to those analyst reports that talk about how there's some value out there because... These are, yes, they are social and political events. They turn violent. They make great headlines. And we feel for the people without, you know, with physical injury and all that. But as an investor, you know, your job is supposed to be able to find those things that other people have dropped or have neglected because they are swayed or they are manipulated by fear or, or things that may not be a long-term positive. What, uh, do you sense that at all? And I'm sorry for taking so long. I'll give you about 10 seconds or so. No, well, the, the, in the broader market, the euro's down as well today. Now, that could be partly dollar strength, but it's definitely part of the sentiment. Look, we saw the German election with the populist AFD winning some of the votes. Exactly. That comes after Macron won the French election. This is populism in Spain. It, it's a reminder. Look, we've got Italian elections coming up at some point. It's a reminder that political landscape in, in Europe is not completely settled. Even after Macron won the French presidency, it's a reminder of the risks there. Is it a buying opportunity? Mm, well, I mean, well, is, there, is there a particular company, let's say, in Spain? Because, you know, just because it's in Spain doesn't mean it just has a Spanish market. I think, for example, of Iberdrola. I mean, you have very large companies that are uh, financials I was looking at earlier. Well, Banco Santander is, yeah. is one of, is one of the, the, the biggest And you say, oh, well, I'm, you know, maybe this is, you know, people that have been looking to get into equities... You know, if there was a catastrophe in the United States, God forbid, then, you you know, you look at the same kind of thing. Listen, the Eurozone economic revival is here. It, it is real. It, it, the PMIs, the, the Purchasing Manager Indexes, have been rebounding for Europe all this year. The European Central Bank is about to take its foot off the accelerator, but it's not quite there yet. European stocks have been have been performing well. Um, and this is this is a hiccup. But it is a reminder that the political backdrop to the whole European Union project, Brexit notwithstanding, is still not set in stone, and there could still be missteps ahead. You know, I have to say, I would take the other view, frankly, Pim, is that you're saying there could be buying opportunities, but there isn't that much selling. And perhaps the reason why there isn't so much selling is because investors really are looking at this and saying, it's just a hiccup. This has all been smoothed out in the past. Even Brexit, yes, we've seen consequences, but it hasn't been that serious. Even the ten-year treasure, ten-year uh, yields in Spain, it went up, not tremendously. People don't seem that worried, and perhaps it's because it's never been paid off to to be too worried about some of these political events, right? 
Well, I think that this one is particularly pressing because of the the implications for for what it says about populism in Europe, which you know investors thought was off the table with with the election of Macron in France, which has come back with the German election a few weekends ago. This reminds people that in Italy, which is the really sort of the the, the core of, of of the problem of the eurozone and its political um, issues. Italy still has a five-star movement, which is doing well in the polls, which is still anti the euro. And at some point, they're going to be an election in, in Italy. I think that it's a reminder that, that that maybe the political backdrop you're investing against is not as settled as, as it looked even a few weeks ago. Mark Gilbert, thank you so much for your insights. Mark Gilbert is a Bloomberg Gadfly columnist covering asset management and debt markets, uh, talking about the Catalonia independence referendum and the ongoing turbulence that has uh, in- that it has engendered. I want to bring in Chris Mackey now. He is the founder of Solutionomics based in New York, and it is a uh, platform described as being dedicated to developing and disseminating return on investment-based corporate tax policy. Uh, Chris Mackey, thank you very much uh, for being with us, a former contributor to the Federal Reserve Beige Book. Uh, your topic, and I, and I want you to expand if you can, though, because it, it, tax reform is, you know, it can lead you down a rabbit hole. But specifically, what is the the, the U.S. Uh, administration trying to do with the relationship between U.S. corporations, what they earn overseas, how much tax they should pay, and how to get as much of that money back to the United States as possible? Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. What they are trying to do is, and this is their broader perspective in their entire proposal is they're trying to stimulate job growth and higher wages. And one of the theories is that if we lower the tax rate on the earnings from overseas, that will entice companies to use that cash to create more jobs in America. And while I commend the Republicans for undertaking a reform of the tax code, the the problem is it's actually not a reform. It's just more the same. It's let's lower the tax rates more unconditionally, which means that whether or not those the foreign or in profits create jobs in America, the tax rates will go down. Now, there's an alternative, which is to say when companies increase American employment and when they in- increase American wages, then we'll have lower tax rates. And that's what we mean by an ROI-based tax policy. But, Chris, I wonder how much of this is a rhetorical exercise since so many companies pay a lower tax rate. They probably pay more in line with where the government would like to cut the taxes due to all of the deductions and other uh, engineering that accountants do. So to me, I mean, is this just, you know, you could say, you know, what what sounds better if you use it on a stump speech. But in reality, the plan is just to try to simplify things, uh, you know, to, to get things into a more kind of understandable level. Well, you bring up a very good point because the average effective tax rate, the tax rate that uh, companies have paid on average since 2000, has actually been 19.5%. So that's already below the 20% statutory rate. Now, the devil is in the details and whether or not they eliminate all of the deductions that are currently out there that get companies down to 19.5%. But regardless of what they do with the rate, 
if they don't tie each company's tax rate to each company's rate of job creation and wage level, it won't be real reform. It'll but, be just a continuation of a hope-based policy. Well, but hold on a second, Chris, because if you start to single out companies and start to evaluate what job creation means, what individual companies' sort of contribution to the U.S. economy is, this starts to look a little more subjective and could end up being uh, somewhat uh, counter to sort of the spirit of capitalism, no? Oh, no, absolutely not. It is the embodiment of capitalism. It is a merit-based approach. I mean, you know, you know, we're talking about overseas profits. Well, that's, a, you know, subjective, whether or not the profits were, how much the profits were overseas versus domestic. So the solutionomics approach is, look, rather than haggling over winnowing uh, profits in the U.S. versus in tax havens, let's actually focus on the job creation. I mean, look, these companies already know how many people they're hiring, how many people they're firing. They know the wages that they're paying. So we've already got the information. So it's just a matter of using that information in creating a merit-based tax policy. You know, the the Republicans talk about a a postcard for the individual taxpayer. Well, we're proposing a postcard. So you just have four metrics. You score each company on those four metrics, and that determines their tax rate. Okay, so uh, can we, I just want to get a bigger sense here because let's just uh, get you know scrub away some of the, the the fog if we can and say all right, let's just pretend for a minute that all the companies really want to do and all the government really wants to do is help them get the money that's now uh, is sitting in accounts overseas back to the United States. What would be the most effective way to make that happen? Because let's forget about time frames. What would what would they need to do to make that happen? Do you think? Well, first of all, the objective is not to get the money back to the United States. The objective is to get them to increase hiring and higher wages. So you could have two companies. They could both bring the profits back. No, no, I, I understand and, that. I understand that. But I'm just asking, what would – let's be – you know, I want to be as uh, cynical as possible here. What, sure. what, what would be the way to get it back quickly? Oh, the way to get it back quickly is to say, look, the more jobs that you create in America and the higher wages you pay, we're going to lower your tax rate on those foreign earned profits. You do that, we'll lower the rates. Chris Mackey, thank you so much for joining us. Chris Mackey is founder of Solutionomics, uh, which is based in New York and also a uh, contributor to the Beige Book. So he has a good handle on the U.S. economy, uh, talking about what has been proposed with respect to the tax code and uh, what Chris would like to see, which is uh, some kind of merit-based tax rate based on how many jobs you create for the U.S. with us is Lily Katz, a fintech reporter for Bloomberg News, who wrote a couple of fascinating pieces in the past few days. First of all, I want to talk about Overstock.com, which I think of uh, when I was looking for bunk beds for my kids and I saw a lot of overstocked items that they were selling. Um, I think of this as a sort of discount online retailer. I do not think of this as a uh, cyber currency provider. And yet that is what's fueling its returns right now. Can you explain a little bit? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. You know, Overstock actually got into the cryptocurrency blockchain space back in 2014. They were one of the first, if not the first retailer to start letting people buy stuff online with uh, cryptocurrencies. And so they first started letting people use Bitcoin to buy, you know, that bunk bed you might want to purchase for your kid. Um, 
And they also, in 2014, started this initiative to develop blockchain technology. They called it Medici Ventures. And Medici, uh, the main part of Medici is this other business called T0, which I think includes a, it's, it includes a fintech company and two broker dealers. And um, recently, the, the most recent exciting news that they've announced is that they're starting a cryptocurrency exchange to actually let people buy and sell different uh, cryptocurrencies. So I, they, other than that, they've also started letting people uh, pay with other cryptocurrencies aside from Bitcoin on their website. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting to see a retailer in, in this space, right? I, you know, I'm not going to make you do the definition thing <laughs> because it, it always goes over my head anyway. I want to know, though, if you, you said cryptocurrencies, take out the word crypto. Do they need a license in order to be able to do this in the public uh, venue? That is a great question, a very timely question, and a question that a lot of people have different answers to. You know, the SEC recently came out with guidance saying, uh, you know, cryptocurrency, some cryptocurrencies might be securities if, um, you know, if you're buying them and you're getting a return on them. Um, the CFTC has come out and said these things might be commodities. There are also lots of different licenses you can get within different states. So... A lot of exchanges, for example, are regulated by state and maybe not by federal uh, regulators. So it's kind of like this big gray area. It's kind of it's still such a new area. And I don't think regulators have fully figured out how to regulate it yet. Well, and it's interesting because uh, the Commodity Futures uh, Trading Commission just right now is looking at some odd trading on Coinbase. That they're calling a flash crash in a cryptocurrency that you wrote about uh, in a story on the Bloomberg Today. I thought this was fascinating. You have uh, cryptocurrency flash crash and the specter of perhaps an unknown amount of leverage behind this transaction that might have st uh, spurred such a crash. Can you give us a sense of what happened here and is this is this does this matter i mean is this enough money to matter at this point yeah it's a lot to digest but um on so back in june what happened was so there's this very popular uh cryptocurrency exchange called coinbase it's where you know most people go to buy and sell bitcoin and the second largest cryptocurrency which is called ether uh and on june 21st there was this flash crash and basically there was this big $12.5 million uh, sell order that came in, which was like one of the biggest ever uh, on the exchange. And that the exchange kind of couldn't handle that much volume and it caused the price of Ether to plunge a bit. And then that triggered a lot of other sell orders to happen. And so it, zooming out, the price of Ether within like 45 milliseconds crashed from, you know, around $300 to $0.10 cents and then shot back up. Because of a $12.5 million order. Right. Yeah. It, and it's, I mean, in the greater scheme of things, looking at the stock market, right, like that's not... And the reason that then we all care so much about this is what? Because the hype around digital currencies and blockchain technology is so great that there's a proliferation of potential uses or... Well, a lot what? of people, I mean, people are putting a lot of money into this space, right? Like people lost a lot of money from that flash crash happening and the space is only getting bigger and bigger. In the last, just this year alone, I think $2 billion has flowed into initial coin offerings, which are these new cryptocurrencies that are getting started. Um, but with the, the flash crash thing that I was just talking about, um, the CFTC we just learned is looking into what happened here and they've sent Coinbase 
uh, they exchange a letter asking a bunch of questions about one, like about that $12.5 million trade and two about margin trading, which is when you extend buyers and sellers leverage so they can, you know, buy or sell more of a, an asset than they'd otherwise be able to. Are these cryptocurrencies not very frequently traded or is it just that they're usually traded in much smaller sizes? The the latter, yeah. The latter? They are frequently traded, right. but most people don't do $12.5 million <laughs> trades. Well, but, but it's sort of surprising because if Coinbase wants to be the big player in this going forward, they have to have the technology to be able to manage this, no? Right. This is commonplace in almost any other market out there. Yeah, no, it's true. And they've they've been plagued by a lot of other issues uh, in the last year or so. They've had outages. They've had uh, issues with the exchange being slow, which, you know, prevented people from being able to buy and sell at certain points. And I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of like like the startup company that came into the space and maybe didn't expect this crazy volume to start hitting the exchange. So maybe they're not prepared for this much, this heavy of a flow, you know? Uh, thank you very much. Lily Katz, uh, fintech reporter for Bloomberg News. You know, just a, a quick thing. I want you, can you tell people your Twitter handle? Because this is a topic that we need all the guidance we can get on. And you're one of the best sources. I can. It's a very simple Twitter handle. It's at Lily Katz, L-I-L-Y-K-A-T-Z. Anything else you recommend this? Should we read? I mean, we read everything you write here at Bloomberg. Read, uh, read Bloomberg. We have good coverage of cryptocurrencies lately. Well done. Thanks very much. Lily Katz, fintech reporter for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.